Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. On this episode, we're going to be talking about what the midterm election results mean for American energy policy. We're going to be looking at hopes of building a new clean energy manufacturing industry in the US. And we're going to ask the question, does natural gas have a role as a bridge fuel to get us to a low-carbon future, or is that bridge being burned? To discuss those issues, we have one familiar face joining us again, and one newcomer to the Energy Gang, our old friend Robbie Orvis is here. He's the Senior Director for Modelling and Analysis at the think tank Energy Innovation. Hi, Robbie. How are you? Good to have you back. Hey, Ed. I'm great. Great to be back. I feel like we haven't been on a show together uh, for a while, so excited to uh, be back together. Yeah, no, that's right. Of course, you were on with Melissa over the summer, weren't you? Yeah, no, great, great to see you again. It's also a great pleasure to welcome for the first time Jackie Forrest, who's the Executive Director of the ARC Energy Research Institute in Calgary. Hello, Jackie. Many thanks for joining us. Hi, Ed. Now, you and I go way back. I remember I started calling on your expertise on Canadian energy, in particular, many years ago, um, back when I was just starting out probably as a journalist writing about energy. But for the benefit of people who might not know you, could you explain a little bit about the ARC Energy Research Institute? What do you do? Well, the ARC Energy Research Institute is the research group for Canada's largest energy-focused private equity firm called ARC Financial. We are currently investing in clean energy and energy transition, as well as traditional energy opportunities. You know, the research group uh, looks at the macro trends and tries to help identify areas that make sense, that we can get returns, that it won't you know, have the risk profile that we're looking for. And, and of course, that the policy, especially in energy transition, is supportive of, of investing. Thanks. And I, I also think it's often useful for people to hear about uh, career paths and how we got to our jobs in, in energy that we have today. Do you want to talk a little bit about the way you got to that job at Arc Energy Research? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Well, I am a, an energy nerd, always loved energy. I'm an engineer by training. I spent the first 10 years or so of my career uh, in more engineering roles and to do a software. Uh, but at, at some point during that journey, I came to a company called IHS and they acquired a company called CIRA shortly after I joined Cambridge Energy Research Associates. And when I saw what they did, you know, they were like talking about energy and doing forecasts around energy. I'm like, that's what I need to do. So it took me a while to convince them, but I finally got on board. And, and of course, that's where I met you, Ed. I became the leader of our Canadian energy practice and uh, got to meet people like you, like over in London that were at the time trying to understand Canadian energy, especially at that time, the oil sands, which were a really big topic, still are. And yeah, I've just really enjoyed it. And I came about nine years ago to join ARC and do similar work, but focus more, you know, from the perspective of investing, which I've really enjoyed. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. And we look forward very much to benefiting from your expertise on the show today. Now, as I was saying in the introduction, the first thing I want to talk about today is the outlook for US energy policy after the midterm elections just held in the second week of November. Those elections... I think there was some speculation beforehand that there'd be what they were calling a red wave, that there would be kind of very decisive victories for the Republicans. Didn't quite work out like that. The Democrats have held the Senate. But the Republican Party has taken control of the House of Representatives, albeit not with a huge majority, but with some, I think the last time we looked with two seats still to be decided, they had 220 seats uh, in the House compared to 213 for the Democrats. So a working majority, certainly for the Republicans there. Question then is, what difference does this make to energy policy and how might we see what comes out of Washington on energy over the next couple of years change as a result of that change in composition in the House? So Robbie, I want to talk to you first about this. You're obviously Washington-based. You follow policy issues like this very closely. At the most basic level, that shift from a narrow Democratic majority in the House to a narrow Republican majority in the House, which is what we're going to have starting in January. How much difference does that make, do you think? Yeah, well, it's it's a great question. And, um, you know, there's been so much uh, federal legislation over the last couple of years relating to climate. It's It's a good time to kind of reassess what the future looks like. And so I think Given that the Republicans uh, are going to be in control of the House, but that the Senate, it looks like at a minimum will be 50 uh, Democratic senators and possibly 51, depending on the outcome of the Georgia election, means that uh, it's unlikely that there'll be meaningful climate or clean energy legislation one way or another for at least the next couple of years. Uh, I think you can 
look also to what's already being discussed and announced by the incoming House majority. And so Republicans are already talking about uh, eliminating the select committee on the climate crisis in the House. I think that's just kind of a telling sign of the direction things are going. And there's already been a discussion of more oversight, uh, especially given all of the funding that's gone out over the last couple of years, for example, to the Department of Energy. I think we should expect to see a lot more there. So I think legislatively, there's there's not a lot, maybe permitting reform. Well, I want to come on to permitting reform in a moment, because I do think that's um, going to be potentially hugely important. Just on that broader point about legislation in general, I guess maybe we didn't expect an enormous amount to come out of Congress on energy over the next two years, given that they've been very active on that over the past two years already, right? When you look at the bipartisan infrastructure law that passed last year, and then the Inflation Reduction Act signed into law in August, that's a hugely significant bit of legislation. Congress has done a lot already. It was always going to be unrealistic, perhaps to expect them to do a lot more, wasn't it? Yeah, no, that's that's right. I think, uh, at least personally, the fact that the Congress is split means there's less likelihood, for example, of legislation to repeal or change the Inflation Reduction Act, which is kind of was what I was concerned about, um, you know, if things had played out a little differently. Yeah. I mean, how real of a threat do you think was that? I mean, was there a possible, obviously, given that um, President Biden, who's a strong supporter of the Inflation Reduction Act, he was going to remain president, he could always have vetoed legislation. Was there really a prospect, do you think, that some of the provisions of that act could have been rolled back if we'd had Republican control of both the House and the Senate? Right. So uh, that's a really good point. Uh, we, you know, we still have a Democratic president with veto authority. So probably unlikely we would have legislation that would pass um, and be signed by the president undoing pieces of the Inflation Reduction Act. But you know, there's still roadblocks that Congress, either chamber, can put in and make things more difficult. So having Congress not be completely Republican, where there's been a kind of stated intent of undermining the Inflation Reduction Act is a good thing for the progress we've made on climate policy in the last couple of years. And so what do you think about permitting reform then? And and where has that got to? So this is something which I think a lot of people in the energy industry would say is hugely important, that essentially, it's too difficult to build stuff in the United States now. And that's a problem, absolutely a problem in the oil and gas industry and and for fossil fuel companies. But it's very definitely also a problem for low carbon energy industries. And it's a big problem for, for instance, um, building new electricity transmission connections, which are absolutely vital to developing more renewables in the United States. So there's this very broad support for reform. And it was something that Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who was instrumental in getting the Inflation Reduction Act passed over the summer, something that he was very committed to was to say, yes, I'm going to support the Inflation Reduction Act with all this help for low carbon energy. But in return for that, I also want support on permitting reform, which is something that will help all kinds of energy, including high carbon as well as low carbon. And that's the thing that I want to get passed. And because of that broad support across all kinds of energy industries for that reform, it looked like that might get bipartisan support and be able to pass. It hasn't happened like that so far. And an attempt to get it through Congress back in September crashed and burned. There was clearly not support. There was opposition both from Republicans and from quite a lot of people, representatives in particular in the House on the Democratic side. And so that raised the question of whether this permitting reform was actually going to happen at all. What's your readout on that now, Robbie? And do you think that calculus has been changed at all by the election results? Yeah, it's tough, tough to know exactly. So President Biden has publicly been supportive still of passing permitting reform. And I believe when it was pulled, there was still discussion at the time of trying to include it in an end of year defense authorization bill. And so that's reading the news, that's kind of still maybe one pathway. Um, There's basically two big pieces of legislation that Congress is aiming to pass by the end of the year. One is a spending bill, an omnibus spending bill, and the other is a defense authorization bill. And so there's been discussion of trying to try again for permitting reform as part of the defense bill, but there's still a lot of questions and the same members of the Democratic Party that had concerns with it in the past, I think probably have the same concerns. So 
whether or not that happens uh, before Congress changes uh, is is difficult to know, but I would keep an eye out for the defense bill since it seems like that's where it may go. And then once the Republicans take control of the House, maybe there's a whole new set of things that are possible on permitting reform with mixed Congress. I think remains to be seen kind of whether or not there's a pathway there. So Jackie, what do you think about all this? So you're Canada-based, obviously, but have uh, a lot of investments. Your firm has a lot of investments in the US. How do you see the policy environment now and how do you see it evolving? Well, you know, we're I'm happy to hear Robbie say that uh, he thinks that the IRA isn't going to be touched because if, oh, there's some massive incentives and people making investment decisions right now based on on them. So uh, I think most people have that view that it won't be affected. Um, and I hope that you're right. I mean, the president, as, as you said, has the veto power for the next two years. Hopefully that becomes established. And, you know, companies are going to make real capital investments. And it's not always the case. But when they do, uh, this often makes these things harder to reverse. So uh, I think the big, biggest piece of good news there is that uh, we can continue to think that those incentives are going to stick around. Yes, the permitting would be great. And I think that is a major barrier. That's a big issue here in, in any Western country, actually, is how long it takes to build these things and really how unachievable some of these goals are when it takes us 10 years uh, between permitting and regulatory review and actually construction to get these projects up and running. So it'll be interesting to see if, if the U.S. is able to do that, because I definitely think it's a necessary piece of the puzzle to achieve these ambitious goals. And how do you feel about the political environment in the U.S. in the longer term, as you say, given the length of time that it takes to develop all kinds of energy infrastructure? It does seem like the U.S. policy environment can swing very dramatically from election to election on the basis of quite small changes of the number of votes. You know, if you look at the country's, let's call it broadly divided 50-50, I mean, I know it's not exactly right, but just as a kind of a model, the number of votes that have decided the last two presidential elections has been really small on the scale of the population of the United States, right? It's been 78,000, I think, votes if they'd gone the other way. The 2016 election uh, would have gone the other way. The 2020 election it's only 45,000 votes needed to go the other way. So these kind of fine margins, deciding potentially very large policy swings, which can kind of go backwards and forwards um, in quite dramatic ways, it feels like. Is that a concern to you? Is that something which is sort of a disincentive towards investing in the US, towards developing the kind of low carbon energy projects that you're investing in at the moment, and delivering the kind of infrastructure that the country is going to need to get on a path to greatly reduced emissions and ultimately to net zero? Well, yeah, definitely certainty of policy is, is a key thing, especially because many of these energy transition investments are really dependent on the policies and the incentives for the economics to work. Uh, you know, I think if, I, if we were talking in July of 2022, I would have said Canada looks like you know, way better place um, from the perspective of a lot of these things can make economic sense and the U.S. a lot more challenged. However, you know, with the IRA coming along and providing 10 years of visibility to these incentives and, you know, I hope the theory is right that this gets entrenched and, you know, Republican uh, states that are more red are, are getting a lot of benefit from the IRA as well and they're seeing investment into their states and, and that creates certainty and, and a lot, you know, the visibility that this will be around for a decade, I think is going to drive a lot of investment. Interestingly enough, in Canada, you know, we have things like carbon tax, which sound great, um, sound like they have a lot of longevity, but we have political uncertainty too. Uh, the other big party in Canada is against carbon tax, and that creates a lot of uncertainty towards investing. So I feel like the IRA, the 45Q, these types of policies do provide more certainty than a carbon price in, in many respects. I always think back to over the last decade or so of clean energy tax credits in the U.S., and they've mostly managed to stick around through changing administrations. I mean, it's, you know, they've right as they're about to expire, they get extended, which has its own uh, challenges if you're investing in clean energy technologies. But they seem to be broadly, you know, accepted. And like you said, Jackie, once they're in place, it's hard to to withdraw them, especially when business decisions you know, across the country in different political areas are being made based on those assumptions about the tax credit. So, you know, I'm hopeful that 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 will that model will will continue. So thinking about 
bipartisan support for energy policy. One strategy that does seem to have very broad support across the political spectrum in the US is attracting more manufacturing jobs and developing a stronger uh, manufacturing industry. The Inflation Reduction Act was targeted very specifically at supporting that, creating jobs in manufacturing in low carbon energy in the US, in wind, solar, storage, EVs, all kinds of different areas. And as you were just suggesting, Jackie, it does look like in that objective, the Inflation Reduction Act has been hugely successful. It's really interesting just kind of hearing commentary on it in other countries. I was at a conference the other day, someone, an executive from Equinor, the Norwegian energy group, which has been, obviously has its roots in oil and gas, but is developing a lot of low carbon energy in particular, um, getting into offshore wind in a big way. He was essentially complaining about it and saying, this seems crazy that um, the United States should be ahead of Europe in terms of the support it's offering for clean energy. But that's the way things are going. I was looking just this morning, there was a story on Reuters. And let me just, I'll just find the precise words because it's really striking. A lot of German companies saying, this is a real issue for us. There was a, um, a battery company that had been thinking about building a factory in Germany, now thinking about building it in the US instead because of the incentives that are available there. The chief executive of Siemens Energy was quoted as saying, if we don't do anything, a lot will emerge in the United States. The risk of migration is there. And I was hearing just talking to a colleague this morning about um, Canada as well, and a lot of discussion in, in the Canadian energy industry about how the low carbon opportunities are really strongest in the US right now. And Canada needs to do more to um, kind of sharpen up its act basically and do more to support low carbon manufacturing because if it doesn't do that all those opportunities are going to drain away to the US. So Jackie interested in in your thoughts on this and again when you're sort of um, making decisions on investments as you've been saying the policy framework put in place by the Inflation Reduction Act is really important. Do you agree now that the US is kind of the best place in the world now to invest for low carbon energy manufacturing? Well, I mean, yeah, it's really hard to compete. Like to your battery example, with you look at the incentives for battery cells and modules, like you could almost have a third price reduction on building your battery in the United States over other places because of those credits are very significant. Uh, something like $45 per kilowatt hour incentive uh, if you look at both the modules and the battery cells. So, and then if you're over in Europe, not only you've got that, you've got to deal with the high energy prices. And so it's, it's going to be tough to compete. We are very interested in manufacturing. We think there's going to be a lot of growth, whether it be all the different components to support electrification. We're currently invested in a solar manufacturing company that's producing and manufacturing solar panels on both sides of the border in Canada and the U.S. They're the third largest producer of solar modules in the United States today, and they are planning to double their capacity in the United States. Um, and this policy has certainly helped that decision along. And uh, it's difficult to justify capacity expansions in Canada today. I have to say, this is something I've really had to adjust my thinking on over the past few months, because it always seemed to me like China had such an entrenched advantage globally in terms of being able to offer low-cost manufacturing at scale for a lot of crucial products for clean energy that are essentially commodified for solar panels certainly but also for batteries also for wind turbines if you look at china's share of global manufacturing in those sectors hugely dominant uh, the great majority of uh, manufacturing capacity for some of these crucial products and components is concentrated in china and it always felt to me like that was going to be really hard to shift but maybe actually the Inflation Reduction Act is starting to do that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's actually much higher than that, Ed. In, in many areas, it's like 80 to 90%. And in some areas like polysilicon or wafers, it's like virtually almost all in China. And, you know, when we think about energy security, I mean, that should be all on our minds. Is that really a sustainable situation that we depend on one country, especially when we're talking about ramping up, doubling the amount of installations of solar in the United States alone? 
uh, over the next several years. It, it just really isn't sustainable. But yeah, it's the cheapest thing to do. And that's why that's that's happened. And they've they've made a strategic effort to build out those sectors as well. But, you know, I think we need to pay more uh, in North America and Canada and U.S. to bring these manufacturing technologies home and the expertise, the ability to do it. And and sometimes the cheapest energy isn't the best. You know, we, I, I just, I, I have a podcast too called Arc Energy Ideas, and we just had the former Minister of Energy for Germany, Paul Altamer, and he talked about why did Germany get the cheap gas from Russia? Because it was cheap, because it was cheaper than the alternative and industry wanted cheap energy. And up until now, clean energy is a bit about getting the cheapest thing. But I think we have to start thinking about energy security and paying more. And in this case, it's the taxpayer that's paying more to to provide this technology and this industry, you know, more more within our borders. So, Robbie, what's your take on this? Do you think it's plausible for the U.S. to end its reliance on China and other low cost producers as sources of crucial technology for clean energy? Well, I think it depends a lot on the industry. Um, so I was just looking at the projections from the Solar Energy Industries Association, um, which was uh, provided by Wood McKenzie. Um, but just looking at the the manufacturing growth, uh, the the growth in solar manufacturing jobs under the IRA, right? So it's you know twenty nine thousand this year, and by twenty thirty, it's expected to be over a hundred thousand, hundred and three thousand. Wow. I mean, that is Gosh, yeah. you know three xing the. And that's just manufacturing of solar uh, in the U.S. So certainly for um, for some industries, you know, relative to the goals of the administration and the the deployment levels that some of the modeling of the IRA was seeing for solar, I don't know if that's going to be enough to fully supply the U.S. with with its solar needs. Um, same goes for batteries and, and other technologies, but definitely to put a dent in it. And if other countries like Canada or if you know countries in the European Union start doing something similar and are able to, to catalyze these industries, then I think the composition of the clean energy manufacturing industry will look very different in 10 or 15 years. And do you agree with Jackie's point that it's at least to some degree a national security issue? It's just as I think that's a great analogy, as you say, just as Germany depended on low cost Russian gas, and that was fine for decades until it wasn't. In the same way, are people coming to think that actually being reliant on low cost Chinese manufacturing of solar panels and batteries is uh, something that in the long run is an unacceptable risk? I do agree. Uh, I think we need a diversified global supply chain. I think COVID especially uh, has highlighted the need for diversified global supply chains. And of course, the current situation in Ukraine and the rest of Europe with Russian gas. Uh, And so I think it's a good thing to have a a more diversified clean energy industry um, that is able to be a bit more nimble and more able to adapt to the changing global economy. And Jackie, what do you expect then about the way the rest of the world will go? As I was saying, you're hearing from Europe, from Canada, from all sorts of places, people essentially complaining, saying that the US clean energy manufacturing sector is getting an unfair advantage because of all the subsidies and incentives that they're getting in the Inflation Reduction Act. Do we think we're going to see, I mean, there's been suggestions, for instance, that um, there could be actions at the World Trade Organization, and there are suggestions that this could be counted as unfair subsidies and countries will be able to take action under WTA rules. On the other hand, the other option is a kind of, if you can't beat them, join them type attitude, and we'll see very similar kind of support packages for low carbon energy manufacturing springing up in lots of other countries across Europe, Canada, in Asia, other countries around the world. How do you expect that's going to play out? Well, I can tell you what's happened in Canada. There's been a lot of... um concerns around what this means. We've had manufacturing, and we don't have a huge manufacturing industry, but the little that we do, uh, those companies are all talking about any new investments are definitely going to the US and even maybe moving some of the capacity they have in Canada today to the US over this. So uh, we did have a response from our government. We had a fall economic update from our federal government last month where they promised to deliver a Canadian version of the Inflation Reduction Act, but we'll, we'll make a better name for it, of course. 
Uh, <laughs> that was always Exodus. a hilarious name. Calling it the Inflation Reduction Act <laughs> always was the most bizarre bit of branding, wasn't it? Yeah. So they're uh, they're talking about things like investment tax credits for generation technologies, like clean generation technologies. Uh, we don't really have something like a production tax credit today. Uh, so we'll wait and see what that looks like. Uh, they are talking about consultations right now to understand what they need to do on the manufacturing side to compete. And the plan is that this would all be clarified by spring of 2023. Uh, so there's still some uncertainty for sure, but the government has definitely signaled they want to do something that enables our industry to compete. And, uh, you know, in some cases, I think it may be hard. Uh, one example is, uh, I don't know if you're aware, there's so, so much in that bill, but that if you buy, for example, if you want to get a production tax credit or an investment tax credit on your generation project, uh, in some cases, if you're buying U.S products, you're going to get a better tax credit than if you're buying a Canadian product. Um, so in some areas, I know I don't know how easy it is for us to compete. Even if we were to put the same incentives on the production, you know, it may be that our products from Canada have less demand because of some of those. Um, but I think we're going to do our best to try to compete. I do think that's probably the better approach at this point, because uh, fighting it in a World Trade Organization court is going to take a long time, and it's not going to help accelerate the energy transition or build up your economy, you know, for the, the new clean energy world that we live in. So I, I think it's a more constructive approach. It does cost the taxpayer money. Um, you know, I would argue, though, that it's, you know, you're forfeiting taxes that you wouldn't have gotten anyway. Uh, and for that, you know, if it results in more manufacturing jobs, you're going to be gaining in terms of more income tax and more state tax and other benefits that will come from that. So it may not be as expensive as it maybe appears when you first look at it to the taxpayer. So, Robbie, what's your expectation about how this might play out internationally? Well, I, I um, was a little alarmed to see some of the rhetoric uh, leading up to COP from, from the EU about, you know, potentially fighting some of the IRA at the World Trade Organization, although that hasn't come to pass. Um, but, uh, you know, I think for the reasons Jackie mentioned, right, if it if it does go to some kind of arbitration or something, I mean, that that takes a long time to play out and the ship will have sailed. So, um, you know, I'm I'm interested to see how other countries uh, follow. I, uh, you know, I think what's happening in Canada is really interesting. I, you know, if I had to completely guess, I would think we might see something um, in the EU, maybe in response, uh, although the EU has its own whole energy transition um, and climate goals that are helping frame kind of the investments over there already. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that's the direction we go in, that we are supporting, continue to support the clean energy transition globally and not trying to fight support for it. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is natural gas. One of the most often argue about ideas in the energy transition is this question of whether natural gas can be what they call a bridge fuel, a lower carbon fuel that can meet energy needs for the short and medium term while reducing emissions, in particular because gas creates lower emissions than coal when used for power generation. So it can perform that role in the medium term while we're on a path towards a zero carbon or a net zero carbon economy in the longer term. That idea of gas as a bridge fuel has been much disputed, very controversial topic, and we'll get into some of the reasons why I think now. But there's been this suggestion recently that that bridge is burning. It's not going to be there anymore. And the particular thing I think that sort of um, hit a lot of people was this assessment from the International Energy Agency, the rich countries group that works together on energy analysis and policy, they come up with this projection in what they call their step scenario, which is a stated policy scenario, which is basically saying, if governments do everything they say they're going to do, then how is the world going to play out? And they had their recent forecast for this scenario, where they revised down very sharply their projection of future natural gas demand. That looked like a signal that this sense of natural gas as a bridge fuel to a low carbon future was under attack. And for a variety of reasons, possibly longer persistence of coal, possibly renewable energy growing faster, you are not going to see that same demand for natural gas over the next couple of decades and beyond. So 
Jackie, what's your sense of the significance of this then? When you look at this apparent change of view from the IEA downgrading their projection of future natural gas demand, how important do you think that is? Well, I think it's really significant. Like if you look at their stated policy scenario, it's flat uh, versus growing 15% in the previous edition. And if you look at the announced pledges, gas now declines by 35% between now and 2050. Those are all 2050 numbers. Before it was more like only 5%. So it is a major revision and it comes from many places. You know, one is, well, gas is really expensive right now. And so there's going to be less adoption in the near term. You know, countries uh, outside of Europe haven't been able to get gas. I mean, you've got countries like Pakistan that have had rolling blackouts because they can't get gas. So that's going to teach them not to rely on as much gas in the future as maybe they were thinking of before. You've got, we just talked about the IRA, you know, policies like that, that, you know, generally as those new technologies get come in, they're replacing gas. So I do think we probably see a world here where we have less gas demand than we would have without this energy crisis. Uh, However, I'm not sure it's as extreme as some of these numbers because it's going to be hard to get off gas for the existing base that we have today. And, And I think that it's going to be quite resilient, especially when you think about backing up renewables, replacing all that coal that's being used in the world today, and things like heating, which it, it can be more difficult to to move off gas. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, as you say, it's, it's very interesting when you think about the impact of the energy crisis. One of the things, um, one of the ways you could view what's going on essentially now is that it's much of the world working out how to do without energy from Russia and Russia is one of the world's largest natural gas producers, one of the largest holders of natural gas reserves. And so if the world isn't going to be buying energy from Russia, then there's just going to be a lot less natural gas available on world markets. And as you say, that's going to push the price higher and it's going to drive people towards alternative sources of energy, alternative ways to generate power. And that, in the kind of positive sense for the energy transition, could mean increased investment in renewables. In the negative sense, could mean greater persistence of coal. And actually, we're seeing, of course, coal making a bit of a comeback in Europe right now. Coal production and coal-fired generation on the increase in China, many other parts of Asia, and so on. So it's certainly plausible, I think, to to paint this picture of gas being squeezed between renewables and coal. But I feel like I agree with you that still, in the longer term, there are a lot of uses for natural gas where it's actually really hard to see substitutes. And if you're going to think about a net zero world that we have to get to, then certainly there's a couple of uses for natural gas you could see having long-term resilience. One would be for power generation with carbon capture. And obviously a whole other debate about whether you think uh, carbon capture is uh, really going to be a significant viable long-term technology, but my feeling is it's got to be because we don't have great alternatives. And then there is also the question of industrial uses and things that we can use uh, hydrogen for to replace natural gas, where one of the crucial routes to producing low carbon hydrogen will be from natural gas again then with carbon capture and storage for the carbon that you extract from the natural gas to make hydrogen and those two uses for natural gas power generation from carbon capture and hydrogen what they call blue hydrogen could have a lot of persistence i think and so without getting into the specific numbers that the IEA is talking about personally i feel that Uh, that sense of natural gas as an important part of the energy mix, even as you head towards net zero, that idea is still alive. But I don't know, Robbie, what do you think? Well, I uh, generally agree. I perhaps am a little more pessimistic on the role of gas uh, in the future. But I think even, you know, if we just think about the sectors of the economy and how we decarbonize them, right, we use a lot of gas to heat buildings and you know, building heating equipment lasts for 15 to 20 years. So even if we start tomorrow with only putting in heat pumps, we're talking about still using a lot of natural gas in buildings for the next one to two decades. So, um, you know, that different for, for warmer climates, but certainly in the colder climates, um, it, it's going to continue even with strong policy in the building sector. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think for me, an interesting angle is, you know, looking at the uh, the same data from the IEA for 
North America and U.S. supply, that kind of peaks around 2027 or so, and then it starts to decrease. So the supply in uh, 2050 is lower than it is today. And so what does that mean for liquefied natural gas export terminals? You know, there's a ton of those um, that are in the permitting process in the U.S. And you know, what does it mean if the supply goes down? What does it mean if demand decreases and the European Union moves quickly to get off gas and we suddenly have cheap liquefied natural gas for a lot of, you know, Pakistan and Southeast Asia and India and other countries that could use it? I think it's it's quite hard to project what's going to happen and its role. But I, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to the investments that are made in the next five to 10 years. And you know, how how that affects the global price and, and then what it means for, you know, the energy transition for different countries. I was just going to add, you know, the, the, that we're actually under-investing in gas right now, according to the IEA. You know, some interesting data that they had was showing how much investment she would need and under stated policies or announced pledges or the net zero. And today, the upstream investment in natural gas is actually on track for the net zero, but we know our demand isn't really on track for that today. You know, the announced pledges is kind of as isn't even where the policy sits today in, ter- in terms of a lot of countries. So, you know, I'm concerned that we're not investing enough in the upstream, actually. And, you know, being a short hydrocarbons isn't necessarily a good thing for the energy transition. You can kind of see what's happening today in Europe and, and the prices we're seeing, uh, how that causes a whole bunch of money to go towards subsidies and talking about price caps and you know, hundreds of billions of dollars is going to go to subsidies just to help people pay their utility bills this year. But that money could have went to long-term solutions for climate. Um, it can create political instability. So, you know, I would argue, actually, we do need natural gas. Even in these lower carbon scenarios, we need some investment in upstream. And the current trajectory that we're on is probably going to lead to a lot of disruption and sort of a disorganized transition. Yeah, no, that is a great point, as you say, that uh, one of the consequences of inadequate supplies of fossil fuels is huge returns to the producers of fossil fuels. And that's been what we've seen this year with sky high prices for natural gas in particular, that the returns to natural gas producers and everyone down the natural gas value chain, they've been absolutely making out like bandits. So I think that's absolutely right, as you say, that it doesn't really help the energy transition at all if it's disorderly if we have these huge mismatches between supply and demand, and just as a general principle, it's always the thing I go on about, which seems incredibly basic, but does seem to be often not actually implemented in policy, which is that the transition has to be demand-led, not supply-led. Yeah, I would say talking about talking about them making out like bandits, well, they're, the reality is, though, they're they're being told by their investors, hey, we're, we're in an energy transition. Don't invest in, in new capital projects. Don't put a bunch of money back into new drilling new wells. Give that to the investors as shareholder payments. And so interestingly enough, um, even though they're making a lot of money, we're not seeing a ton of upstream investment. And it's sort of setting us up for this picture of uh, a shortage of energy. That's that's after like a decade of terrible losses, right? So yeah, <laughs> it's everyone's uh, trying to get their their money back, and it seems like succeeding at the moment. And maybe we are starting to see that change a bit, just this year, maybe even in the past few months, right? So we saw just this week, for instance, there's a company um, signed a contract, long term contract, to supply LNG to Germany, and one of the arguments has always been. Well, Germany doesn't want to sign long-term contracts because they don't really want to be locked into importing gas when in the long term they want their demand for that gas to decline. And it's always felt like that was not going to be a tenable position for them in the long term because at the end of the day, if they're not going to buy gas from Russia, they have to get it from somewhere. And and if they're going to get that gas, they're going to need to sign supply contracts for it. And I remember talking to a European official about it where he was saying something like, oh, and you know, of course, what we've done in Europe is we've kind of, you know, we've sent a very clear signal that we're getting off gas. And that's a very important thing to say to the world. And I said, but look, you know, you've sent the signal, you've not actually done the thing. You're telling the world, oh, we're getting off gas. But if you look at how much gas Europe is actually still using, 
it's a lot. And you were still, as of uh, a year ago, using an enormous amount of Russian gas. You have to be realistic about what your demands are, and you have to be realistic about what you need the world to supply. And as you say, it's just incredibly counterproductive to say to people, oh, well, we don't need any more gas, when actually you do. Well, and, and the reality is, you know, I think it is going to be more difficult to get off natural gas, it, especially in northern climates so like Europe. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit, but like heating, you know, it's very peaky, right? Uh, where there's actually a report uh, that was published here in Canada, and it was uh, done by the consultancy Guidehouse, and it was done for Fortis BC, which is a, a major gas provider in BC. But, but they, British Columbia is a place with 5 million people, for those that, that don't know how large it is, just to put it in perspective. Um, but their summer day demand for gas is, is the equivalent of three gigawatts. You know, they put it into the, the right units. The coldest day is 18 gigawatts. You know, so the, the peak is 50% higher than all of their hydro generation. And BC has a lot of hydro generation. So like the, the problem with heating is that it's, to build the electrical infrastructure to be able to deal with those coldest days is going to be very, very expensive. In fact, they, they did some work to show that uh, going with a low carbon gas versus all electric could save $100 billion just for that small province by 2050, because you know, you're going to have to build a ton of generation capacity that, that's just basically on standby most of the time. So I think Europe's going to find too that for some of these areas and other areas, industrial heat, uh, some areas of industrial heat are difficult to be replaced with electricity. Some can be, but um, I think it's going to be a lot harder and I think one thing to be thinking about is how can we replace that gas with lower, other gaseous fuels that are lower gas, like renewable natural gas, uh, blending in hydrogen to the extent we can. Like, I think that's a much faster way to decarbonize than to think that we're going to, you know, do things like build a system that today um, it would have to be, you know, the electrical system would have take a long time to build too. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, um, as you say, there are, certain climates but it's really hard to see what the alternative is to using gas or as you say some kind of gaseous fuel might be renewable natural gas could be hydrogen could be something else but something which you can store and use at will and store for the long term you know there's this great word in german dunkelflauter which means i think literally something like my german is terrible non-existent but it means something like the dark doldrums and it's basically those weather conditions where it's very overcast, very little solar radiation, and also it's very still, so you get very little wind generation. And those kind of conditions can last for weeks at a time, certainly for a couple of weeks, possibly longer. And then that raises the question, what do you do during that period? It can often happen during the winter, so as you say, very high demand for heating, all the other demands for energy that you've got how do you cope with that it does seem very difficult to think what you can do there's no storage no battery storage at the moment that's available that's going to cover that gap and it does look like gas or some kind of gaseous fuel is going to be essential to meet energy demand during those periods don't want to over egg the case and absolutely there are lots of ways that you can substitute for gas and you can do a lot more with energy storage as you're saying robbie you can switch out um gas heating for heat pumps and so on there is a lot that can be done but still there is an irreducible core that looks really hard to shift jackie you mentioned industrial heat as well as another example of that and i feel like one of the things that there's not really enough thought going into at the moment is that question of what actually is that irreducible core of demand for gas and how do you manage that and how do you decarbonize it and that seems to be like a really important part of the puzzle in terms of getting to net zero and it needs a lot more attention i mean i i agree with a lot of that i mean i i tend to think that a lot of times when we're talking about decarbonizing the economy there's a heavy focus on the last 10 to 20 percent uh, instead of first getting to the 80 to 90%. And so you know, we have a long way to go with electrifying the economy and building clean electricity before these are become the really looming issues. And so certainly we we need to be thinking about them and researching them now, but we shouldn't you know, stop 
building clean electricity or electrifying our demand uses, um, you know, because we may eventually get to the point where we need to think about this stuff. But, you know, I, I do agree that we need some kind of dispatchable low carbon fuel uh, or zero carbon fuel. I mean, if it's advanced nuclear, if it's, um, you know, blue or green hydrogen um, or what have you, uh, you know, renewable natural gas, at least in the U.S., the supply, you know, the National Renewable Energy Lab looked at that a few years ago, and it was like maybe 1% of gas demand if you used every single available resource to make it in the U.S. Um, obviously, Canada is quite different, a lot smaller population, a lot more forested land, so um, might be more more viable in Canada. But, um, you know, I know why a lot of people are interested in what role hydrogen might play in kind of meeting that demand in the future in the US. Um, so I definitely agree, you know, we're, we're not going to get 100% renewables, you know, but we have a long way to go until we're at 70 to 80% and, and to, to figure out what the technology mix might be that helps fill the gap. I do think that we need to think about um, that now because thinking about that now takes many years to develop, right? So yeah, I think we do have more opportunity for renewable natural gas. Um, BC, now that's a, a place with a lot of trees. They did a study that showed that if they used all their wood waste, uh, the supply of low carbon gas could be anywhere between half to two times their current consumption. So I think there are opportunities. Now, wood waste is not necessarily commercial today and not necessarily totally, uh, it's more expensive source because gathering it and that can be quite expensive. But we need to be starting to think about how we develop those solutions today. And and even with the hydrogen, you know, like we have to think about how are we going to put hydrogen into our existing gas infrastructure? You know, Canada's existing gas lines could cross the country 75 times. Are we really going to rip that all out and, and electrify everything? Or could we find ways to use that infrastructure to, to move cleaner gases like hydrogen through it? Then there is work going on thinking about how to line those pipes so that they would be good for using higher amounts of hydrogen. So anyway, I think we have to keep an eye on, recognize that maybe not everything can be electrified and are we investing the, in developing those other solutions? Just to give you an example, my house, 75% of my total energy use is from natural gas. And and so just to, just to kind of think about the load of, of electrifying all that and how practical that is in the timelines we're talking about. We do get a big efficiency benefit, right? Of of electrifying and moving to a heat pump, for example. But, you know, I think uh, the solutions will look different in different countries. I think one thing we've talked about here is also concerns about whether or not equipment like your furnace or your home water heater can burn hydrogen. Um, and also to your point, Jackie, if, if all those pipelines have to be relined to support the hydrogen, I mean, that's a lot of money too, right? So, you know, definitely, I think the solutions will look different in different places, but um, and maybe maybe that's it. And, and, you know, policy can help support the transition and the technology mix that makes the most sense. So those are some great questions, which segue very nicely into my free electron, which unfortunately, I think we're going to have to move to those now. It's been a very long running debate on natural gas as a bridge fuel, I know, and it's no doubt going to continue a long time after this conversation. And I'm sure we'll be coming back to it in the future. But um, we do have to move on, unfortunately time before we end for our free electrons. Uh, Robbie, what have you got? Yeah, well, I um, thought I would spend a few minutes talking about the World Cup um, since we're in the, the midst of it. And by the time this airs, we will know if the US actually advanced this this time around. But I don't know how many people know that um, this is actually the first World Cup that's allegedly net zero emissions. Um, and there's been a big emphasis on sustainability, at least in, in name, uh, and and eliminating greenhouse gas emissions uh, for this World Cup in Qatar. Um, and so, uh, you know, FIFA is claiming that the World Cup will be carbon neutral. Um, the kind of residual emissions are 3.6 million metric tons. Now, that's that's a very small number relative to any major country or even state. But um, the idea is that uh, those are kind of the emissions that can't be directly reduced and will be offset. Uh, and so just some interesting information. Soccer is played on a field. There's uh, our football uh, and uh, there's a lot of water that's required, especially in the desert. So 10,000 liters per day of water being used to keep the fields uh, green and in good shape. Uh, 
uh, mostly powered all by, or mostly all that water is being provided by desalination, um, which is all fossil fuel powered. So it's just kind of an interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting insight into what's required to host a major tournament in the desert. But I think, you know, the most interesting thing is that most of the emissions are, are scope three. They're from transportation and building of the stadiums and what have you. And so uh, as is often the case these days, um, those are being uh, eliminated through offsets. And uh, to achieve that goal, Qatar worked with a group called the Gulf Organization for Research and Development to establish a new carbon market standard. Um, now, there's been a lot of criticism of that, um, including the fact that there are way fewer projects registered than would meet the requirement to eliminate all the emissions. And also that uh, that new market doesn't meet kind of the best international practice standards. And so a lot of the projects that are in the pipeline are there's big questions around whether or not they're additive. They're kind of grid connected, renewable projects. And so, uh, you know, whether or not the World Cup is actually carbon neutral, I think, is up in the air. But I think all that said, it's um, really interesting to see how big a focal point sustainability has become even for FIFA and for the World Cup. And so, you know, just kind of an interesting uh, changing, I think, of of kind of the focus of building out the stadiums and hosting all the teams. Yeah, as you say, that's fascinating. And definitely that question of how real the offsets are and whether we're actually going to see the carbon emissions reductions that are being promised by the projects that the money is going into, that is fascinating question will be very interesting to watch that in the future no doubt there'll be plenty of people digging into that one to see how that plays out but it's it is the fundamental question always obviously with offsets is how real is the offsetting and it's yeah a great example of that so jackie what's yours well hey first i have to talk about soccer that's what we call it here too so uh canada was in the world cup for the first time in 36 years so that was pretty exciting and uh, we got our very first goal ever on Sunday, and then we got eliminated. But it was still, I think, a big win for Canadians. So yeah, um, no, I felt very, I felt bad about Canada getting eliminated because they were not a bad team. Actually, had a couple of really great, really strong players. Yeah, I, I feel like it's a shame. I feel like they could have done better. But yeah, as you say, great just to be there. Now, then we got four more years to practice and <laughs> and uh, come back and uh, be even better. Uh, in terms of my free electron, maybe I'll mention uh, the my podcast with the interview with Peter Altemar, German's former energy minister. So that's the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. And I recommend that discussion because, uh, well, he was the energy minister uh, right up until 2021, was very involved in the decisions to depend on the Russian gas and, and some of the energy transition decisions that were made there as well, nuclear phase out. So it's a great conversation. We talk about, you know, why they became so dependent, talk about the Nord Stream sabotage, and talk about, you know, how realistic it is to depend on imports of hydrogen long term. You know, that's going to be very expensive energy. And is that really going to allow Germany to compete? Uh, I question it. Uh, that's probably going to be the most expensive energy you can get. And, and it's going to be difficult, I think, for industry there. You know, when you come back full circle, why did they depend on the Russian gas? Because it was cheap and it allowed their industry to be competitive. And now they're moving to a place where um, they're going to have very expensive energy. So anyway, I found it a good discussion. So recommend it to your listeners. Yeah, that does sound fascinating. Yeah, I'm certainly going to check that out. And as you say, it's sort of one of those um, really fundamental strategic policy choices that Germany made in terms of energy mix, reliance on uh, Russian gas, getting out of nuclear, over time getting out of coal. And from the outside, sort of it seemed crazy and they were much kind of mocked for it and maligned but it'd be really interesting to hear I think about the thinking and they had reasons and and good reasons to do what they did and to make the choices they made at the time even though they've now been shown to be the wrong choices. Well it has a lot of lessons because for 40 years it was there wasn't a problem right and and why wouldn't you take the cheapest energy why would you burden your economy with more expensive energy? And, we're, you know, we talked about it right at the beginning of the podcast with clean energy. We've been relying on China because that's the cheapest. But sometimes the cheapest isn't the smartest thing to do. But it's very, very hard to, as a policymaker to make those decisions um, to burden your industry with higher energy costs um, when there is a, a cheaper alternative. 
even in the face of, of the potential risks, because you just, it's human nature to discount them as, as highly unlikely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. As I said, I think it'd be, be fascinating to hear and talk about that on that podcast. So I have um, two uh, free electrons, but I'm going to keep them quick. First one is, they're both hydrogen related. First one is a new report that we've just put out at Wood Mackenzie about ammonia and green ammonia, low carbon ammonia in general. You'll probably have noticed there's an enormous amount of interest in low carbon ammonia as a fuel at the moment. A lot of countries talking about burning ammonia for power generation, co-firing maybe in uh, coal-fired power plants and gas-fired power plants to reduce their emissions. There's a lot of talk about ammonia as a maritime fuel as well. And we have this report basically looking into what it would take to build a significant large-scale uh, low-carbon ammonia industry. And essentially the conclusion of that was very clear and strong conclusion is you should not worry about any of those energy uses of ammonia because they're still highly theoretical. These are um, projects that probably could be made to work, but in terms of being made to work properly at commercial scale in ways that are going to make a real difference to emissions overall, they are projects for 2035 and beyond. And if you want to develop a low-carbon ammonia industry in the short term, you should focus on the uses of ammonia that are really big right now. And in particular, that means fertilizer. And about 75-80% of the world's ammonia production goes into fertilizer today. And that is responsible on its own for something like 1%, maybe a little under, but 1%-ish of total global greenhouse gas emissions. So that's a hugely significant contributor just right there in terms of that ammonia into fertilizer supply chain. And so if you want to build a low-carbon ammonia industry, the thing to do is to concentrate on existing uses of ammonia, essentially trying to produce low-carbon ammonia that can be turned into fertilizer, that can be used for all the other uses um, that people have for ammonia in the chemicals industry today. And that's really what you need to be focusing on to get something done significant in the short term, rather than worrying about ammonia as energy, which is a much more distant prospect. So I think that was a really interesting conclusion. And then my other ammonia and hydrogen related uh, free electron is the film Glass Onion, which is the sequel to Knives Out. I know probably a lot of people saw Knives Out, the very entertaining sort of murder mystery starring Daniel Craig as a great detective solving a sort of elaborate uh, murder with lots of clues and lots of suspects and piecing it all together. That film was out a few years back. The sequel is called Glass Onion. has just been out in cinemas. I think it's had a limited run in cinemas. It's going to be on uh, Netflix, though, at the end of December. Very highly recommend it. It's great, really good fun, and has a lot of energy-related content in it. And I think no spoilers, I won't give it away, but hydrogen and the domestic use of hydrogen plays a very key role in the plot and drives a lot of what is going on there. And quite interesting. We should come back actually and talk about it um, uh, when more people have had a chance to see it, because it certainly takes a reasonably uh, strong view on hydrogen and its role in the energy system. So that's uh, that's anyway, very good fun as a film, but also making um, quite a pointed argument at the same time about energy. So as I say, well worth watching and would be great to, to discuss it further. For now, though, um, unfortunately, we do have to leave it. Um, many thanks, both of you. Many thanks, Robbie, for coming in. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, great to be here again. Many thanks, Jackie. Hope we will see you again soon. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. It has been great talking to you both. Um, many thanks to our producers, Shikara Perez and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As I always say, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, complaints, ideas for future shows. Please do keep them coming in. I promised on the last episode that I'd be joining Mastodon. I have actually gone ahead and done that. If you want to look me up there, I'm edcrooks at mastodon.energy. 
as I say, you can look me up there. There's not a massive amount of point doing that, unfortunately, because I haven't actually posted anything yet. I'm still getting my head around it. It is somewhat complicated, but uh, I will certainly try and develop a bit of um, a presence on Mastodon over the weeks to come. It's interesting, and I would advise people to go and take a look around it. It's being seen as a, a rival to Twitter, a possible replacement for Twitter. It does have a very different feel from that. It's more like, if you use Twitter, you know what that's like. It's like a, a town square, maybe like a high school cafeteria. Mastodon, I feel like, is more like sort of walking into a village pub. It's rather more kind of intimate and small scale, but certainly interesting. For now, though, Twitter is probably the best way to reach us and the best way to hear from us. We, as The Energy Gang, are on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back again in a couple of weeks when we'll be rounding up the big events for energy in 2022. Arguably, I think, pretty fair to say, the most dramatic year for energy since the 1970s. So we will have a lot to talk about then. Until then, goodbye.